Book 2, Chapter 12 of Armadale by Wilkie Collins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dawn. Armadale by Wilkie Collins. Book 2, Chapter 12. The Clouding of the Sky. Nine days had passed, and the tenth day was nearly at an end since Miss Gwilt and her pupil had taken their morning walk in the cottage garden. The night was overcast. Since sunset there had been signs in the sky from which the popular forecast had predicted rain. The reception rooms at the great house were all empty and dark. Alan was away, passing the evening with the Milroys, and Midwinter was waiting his return. Not where Midwinter usually waited, among the books in the library, but in the little back room which Alan's mother had inhabited in the last days of her residence at Thorpe Ambrose. Nothing had been taken away, but much had been added to the room since Midwinter had first seen it. The books which Mrs. Armadale had left behind her, the furniture, the old matting on the floor, the old paper on the walls, were all undisturbed. The statuette of Niobe still stood on its bracket, and the French window still opened on the garden. But now, to the relics left by the mother, were added the personal possessions belonging to the son. The wall, bare hitherto, was decorated with water-colorings. With a portrait of Mrs. Armadale, supported on one side by a view of the old house in Somersetshire, and on the other by a picture of the yacht. Among the books which bore in faded ink Mrs. Armadale's inscriptions, From My Father, were other books inscribed in the same handwriting, in brighter ink, to my son. Hanging to the wall, ranged on the chimney-piece, scattered over the table, were a host of little objects, some associated with Alan's past life, others necessary to his daily pleasures and pursuits, and all plainly testifying that the room which he habitually occupied at Thorpe Ambrose was the very room which had once recalled to Midwinter the second vision of the dream, here, strangely unmoved by the scene around him, so lately the object of his superstitious distrust, Alan's friend now waited composedly for Alan's return, and here, more strangely still, he looked on a change in the household arrangements due, in the first instance, entirely to himself. His own lips had revealed the discovery which he had made on the first morning in the new house. His own voluntary act had induced the son to establish himself in the mother's room. Under what motives had he spoken the words? Under no motives which were not natural growth of the new interests and the new hopes that now animated him. The entire change wrought in his convictions by the memorable event that had brought him face to face with Miss Gwilt was a change which it was not in his nature to hide from Alan's knowledge. He had spoken openly, and had spoken as it was in his character to speak. The merit of conquering his superstition was a merit which he shrank from claiming, until he had first unsparingly exposed that superstition in its worst and weakest aspects to view. It was only after he had unreservedly acknowledged the impulse under which he had left Allan at the mere that he had taken credit to himself for the new point of view from which he could now look at the dream. Then, and not till then, he had spoken of the fulfillment of the first vision as the doctor at the Isle of Man might have spoken of it. He had asked, as the doctor might have asked, where was the wonder of their seeing a pool at sunset, 
when they had a whole network of pools within a few hours' drive of them. And what was there extraordinary in discovering a woman at the mere, when there were roads that led to it, and villages in its neighborhood, and boats employed on it, and pleasure parties visiting it? So again he had waited to vindicate the firmer resolution with which he looked to the future, until he had first revealed all that he now saw himself of the errors of the past, the abandonment of his friend's interests, the unworthiness of the confidence that had given him the steward's place, the forgetfulness of the trust that Mr. Brock had reposed in him, all implied the one idea of leaving Allen were all pointed out. The glaring self-contradictions betrayed in accepting the dream as the revelation of a fatality, and in attempting to escape that fatality by exertion of free will, in toiling to store up knowledge of the steward's duties for the future, and in shrinking from letting the future find him in Allen's house, were in their turn unsparingly exposed. To every hour, to every error, to every inconsistency, he resolutely confessed before he ventured on the last simple appeal which closed all. Will you trust me in the future? Will you forgive and forget the past? A man who could thus open his whole heart without one lurking reserve inspired by consideration for himself was not a man to forget any minor act of concealment of which his weakness might have led him to be guilty toward his friend. It lay heavy on Midwinter's conscience that he had kept secret from Allan a discovery which he ought in Alice Allen's dearest interests to have revealed the discovery of his mother's room. But one doubt still closed his lips, the doubt whether Mrs. Armadale's conduct in Madeira had been kept secret on her return to England. Careful inquiry, first among the servants, then among the tenantry, careful consideration of the, of the few reports current at the time, as repeated to him by the few persons left who remembered them, convinced him at last that the family secret had been successfully kept within the family limits. Once satisfied that whatever inquiries the son might make would lead to no disclosure which could shake his respect for his mother's memory, Midwinter had hesitated no longer. He had taken Allan into the room and had shown him the books on the shelves and all that the writing in the books had disclosed. He had said plainly, my one motive for not telling you this before sprang from my dread of interesting you in the room which I looked at with horror as the second of the scenes pointed at in the dream. Forgive me this also, and you will have forgiven me all. With Alan's love for his mother's memory, but one result could follow such an avowal as this. He had liked the little room from the first as a pleasant contrast to the oppressive grandeur of the other rooms at Thorpe Ambrose. And now that he knew what associations were connected with it, his resolution was at once taken to make it especially his own. The same day, all his personal possessions were collected and arranged in his mother's room, in Midwinter's presence, and with, mid with Midwinter's assistance given to the work. Under those circumstances had the change now wrought in the household arrangements been produced, and in this way had Midwinter's victory over his own fatalism by making Allan the daily occupant of a room which he might otherwise hardly ever have entered, actually favored the fulfillment of the second vision of the dream. The hour wore on quietly as Allan's friend sat waiting for Allan's return. Sometimes reading, sometimes thinking placidly, he whiled away the time. No vexing cares, no boding doubts troubled him now. 
The rent day, which he had once dreaded, had come and gone harmlessly. A friendlier understanding had been established between Allen and his tenants. Mr. Bashwood had proved himself to be worthy of the confidence reposed in him. The ped gifts, father and son, had amply justified their client's good opinion of them. Wherever midwinter looked, the prospect was bright, the future was without a cloud. He trimmed the lamp on the table beside him and looked out at the night. The stable clock was chiming the half-hour past eleven as he walked to the window, and the first raindrops were beginning to fall. He had his hand on the bell to summon the servant and send him over to the cottage with an umbrella when he was stopped by hearing the familiar footstep on the walk outside. "'How late you are,' said Midwinter, as Allan entered through the open French window. "'Was there a party at the cottage?' "'No, only ourselves. The time slipped away somehow.' He answered in lower tones than usual, and sighed as he took his chair. "'You seem to be out of spirits,' pursued Midwinter. "'What's the matter?' Alan hesitated. "'I may as well tell you,' he said after a moment. "'It's nothing to be ashamed of. "'I only wonder you haven't noticed it before. "'There's a woman in it, as usual. "'I'm in love.' Midwinter laughed. "'Has Miss Milroy been more charming tonight than ever?' he asked gaily. "'Miss Milroy?' repeated Alan. "'What are you thinking of? "'I'm not in love with Miss Milroy.' "'Who is it, then? "'Who is it? "'What a question to ask. "'Who can it be but Miss Gwilt?' "'There was a sudden silence. "'Alan sat listlessly, with his hands in his pockets, "'looking out through the open window at the falling rain. "'If he had turned toward his friend when he mentioned Miss Gwilt's name, "'he might possibly have been a little startled "'by the change he would have seen in Midwinter's face.' "'I suppose you don't approve of it,' he said, after waiting a little. "'There was no answer.' "'It's too late to make objections,' proceeded Alan. "'I really mean it when I tell you I'm in love with her.' "'A fortnight since you were in love with Miss Milroy,' said the other in quiet, measured tones. "'Pooh! A mere flirtation! It's different this time. I'm in earnest about Miss Gwilt.' He looked round as he spoke. Midwinter turned his face aside on the instant and bent it over a book. "'I see you don't approve of the thing,' Alan went on. "'Do you object to her being only a governess? "'You can't do that, I'm sure. "'If you were in my place, "'her being only a governess wouldn't stand in the way with you.' "'No,' said Midwinter. "'I can't honestly say it would stand in the way with me.' He gave the answer reluctantly, and pushed his chair back out of the light of the lamp. "'A governess is a lady who is not rich,' said Alan, in an oracular manner, "'and a duchess is a lady who is not poor. "'And that's all the difference I acknowledge between them. "'Miss Gwilt is older than I am. I don't deny that. "'What age do you guess her at, Midwinter? "'I say seven or eight and twenty. What do you say?' "'Nothing. I agree with you. "'Do you think seven or eight and twenty is too old for me?' If you were in love with a woman yourself, you wouldn't think seven or eight and twenty is too old, would you? I can't say I should think it too old. If if you were really fond of her? Once more, there was no answer. Well, if there's no harm in her being only a governess and no harm in her being a little older than I am, what's the objection to Miss Gwilt? I have made no objection. I don't say you have, but you don't seem to like the notion of it for all that. There was another pause. Midwinter was the first to break the silence this time. 
Are you sure of yourself, Ellen? he asked, with his face bent once more over the book. Are you really attached to this lady? Have you thought seriously already of asking her to be your wife? I am thinking seriously of it at this moment, said Alan. I can't be happy. I can't live without her. Upon my soul, I worship the very ground she treads on. How long, his voice faltered, and he stopped. How long, he reiterated, have you worshipped the very ground she treads on? Longer than you think for. I know I can trust you with all my secrets. Don't trust me. Nonsense, I will trust you. There is a little difficulty in the way which I haven't mentioned yet. It's a matter of some delicacy, and I want to consult you about it. Between ourselves, I have had private opportunities with Miss Gwilt. Midwinter suddenly started to his feet and opened the door. We'll talk of this tomorrow, he said. Good night. Alan looked round in astonishment. The door was closed again, and he was alone in the room. He has never shaken hands with me, exclaimed Alan. As the words passed his lips, the door opened again, and Midwinter appeared. We haven't shaken hands, he said abruptly. God bless you, Alan. We'll talk of it tomorrow. Good night. Alan stood alone at the window, looking out at the pouring rain. He felt ill at ease, without knowing why. Midwinter's ways get stranger and stranger, he thought. What can he mean by putting me off till tomorrow when I wanted to speak to him tonight? He took up his bedroom candle a little impatiently, put it down again, and walking back to the open window, stood looking out in the direction of the cottage. I wonder if she's thinking of me, he said to himself softly. She was thinking of him. She had just opened her desk to write to Mrs. Oldershaw, and her pen had that moment traced the opening line. Make your mind easy. I have got him. End of Book 2, Chapter 12, Armadale By Wilkie Collins Recording by Dawn